Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Acts of Hope in Times of Despair. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, September 25th, 2016. When the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, Jerusalem was a war zone. We read the army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. Think of the horrors in today's Aleppo's. The Babylonians had breached the city walls, then burned down every important building. The royal palace, government offices, and the sacred temple that had served as the center of Israel's religious life for 410 years since the time of Solomon. They executed government officials. Soldiers plundered Jerusalem's national treasures and everything of any value, both sacred and secular. The narrator's historical details are painful to read. Pots, shovels, wick trimmers, ladles, censers, sprinkling bowls. Dead bodies littered the streets. The Book of Lamentations describes children begging for bread and even cannibalism. The intellectual elite, the skilled workers and artisans were deported to Babylon. The poor who owned nothing were left to fend for themselves amidst disease and famine. The puppet king Zedekiah was only 21 when he was installed by the conqueror Nebuchadnezzar II, who naturally imposed both financial tribute and an oath of allegiance. Maybe it was his youthful naivete or nationalist zeal, but Zedekiah badly overplayed his pathetically weak hand. He consulted with Jeremiah, please pray for us. Is there any word from the Lord? Yes, said Jeremiah, he had not just some political advice, but a word from God. But it wasn't anything that anyone wanted to hear. Surrender to Babylon. Give up. Don't fool yourself. Don't listen to the reckless lies and false dreams of your sycophants. This is the end of the end. Accept defeat. Later, Jeremiah wrote a famous letter to the exiles in Babylon, detailing the implications of his doomsday prophecy. This is what the Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord.
Such was Jeremiah's prophetic counsel. Seek the welfare of your pagan conqueror. Pray for God's blessing on pagan Babylon. Embrace your exile, for there will be no miraculous exodus. Well, big surprise, Zedekiah did not listen to such a defeatist and unpatriotic message. We read, Neither he nor his attendants nor the people of the land paid any attention to the words the Lord had spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Instead, they arrested Jeremiah. Maybe this was for his own protection, given his treasonous message, or maybe it was to silence him. Some of his critics warned Zedekiah that he would desert Jerusalem and flee to Babylon. And after house arrest, they threw Jeremiah down a muddy cistern. Ironically, whereas his own people tried to murder Jeremiah, he was saved by a foreign official from Ethiopia. And so Zedekiah broke his oath with Nebuchadnezzar and made an alliance with Egypt for help. Of course, the Babylonian king crushed this pitiful revolt. Zedekiah fled Jerusalem at night, but was captured. And we read of his end, which was both pathetic and tragic, in 2 Kings 25. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. They then put out his eyes, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. If you go to the British Museum today, you can read about the Siege of Jerusalem in the Babylonian Chronicles. These are clay tablets with cuneiform writing that were translated in 1956. Despite Israel's national calamity, all the carnage and destruction, Jeremiah reassured his people that the siege of Jerusalem was not the last word. However tragic, it was only a penultimate word. For after the devastation, there would come restoration. And so in the lectionary this week, Jeremiah 32 describes one of the crazy symbolic actions for which the prophets were famous like Isaiah running naked in the streets for three years as a sign and portent, like Ezekiel eating the scroll, or shaving his head with a sword, dividing the hair into thirds and then burning it all, or Hosea's marriage to the harlot Gomer. Jeremiah had already performed several prophetic acts, he stood in front of the temple and smashed pottery as the people entered for worship. He wore a cattle yoke around his neck. He buried a pair of undergarments under a rock for a very long time. And now, with the country in ruins and under enemy occupation, God told him to buy his cousin's field. Go, buy a field in the war zone that is Jerusalem. Talk about crazy. It was an act of hope in a time of disaster. To buy a field is to hope for the future. 
Jeremiah's symbolic action reminds me of the Jesuit priest Daniel Berrigan, who performed his own very public and prophetic acts, most infamously burning draft cards and hammering nuclear warheads. And like Jeremiah, Berrigan ended up in prison. These were crazy acts. They seemed pointless. Who cared? And indeed, Berrigan was nothing if not realistic about the political futility of it all. Jim O'Grady once asked Berrigan whether it was tiring to constantly work on the fringes, the fringes of the Catholic Church, the fringes of American politics, the fringes of polite discourse. Berrigan refer referred him to his old friend Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker, a volunteer community devoted to pacifism and serving the poor. Berrigan said she always thought of herself and her work as residing at the center of the Gospels, and so it was everyone else, up to everyone else, to move from the fringes toward her in the center of the gospel. In his May 2, 2016 obituary, Daniel Lewis wrote about Berrigan's prophetic actions, but also about his deep discouragements. He writes, while he was known for his wry wit, there was a darkness in much of what Father Berrigan wrote and said the burden of which was that one had to keep trying to do the right thing, regardless of the near certainty that it would make no difference. In the withering of the pacifist movement and the country's general support for the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, he saw proof that it was folly to expect lasting results. This is the worst time of my long life. Berrigan said in an interview with The Nation back in 2008, I have never had such meager expectations of the system. What made it bearable, he wrote elsewhere, was a disciplined, implicitly difficult belief in God as the key to sanity in survival. Such was God's word to Jeremiah during the siege of Jerusalem and perhaps to us as well today. Brutal realism about our political realities, but also prophetic acts of hope in God. For books this week, I review a new book by Scotty McLennan. The title is called Christ for Unitarian Universalists, A New Dialogue with Traditional Christianity. Boston Skinner House Books, 2016. This book is 276 pages long. Scotty McLennan recently finished 14 years as Dean for Religious Life at Stanford University, where today he teaches ethics and political economy at the Graduate School of Business. Before Stanford, he was the university chaplain at Tufts for 16 years. Back in 1975, he earned degrees at both Harvard Divinity School and Harvard Law School, 
was ordained as a Unitarian Universalist minister and admitted to the Massachusetts Bar, after which he spent 10 years practicing church-sponsored poverty law in urban Boston. Which is to say, for over 40 years now, he's nurtured a passionate commitment to both religious liberalism and social justice in both the church and the academy. In this, his newest book, McLennan tries to bridge the gap between Unitarian Universalists and mainstream Christianity to build bridges and foster a dialogue. In his conclusion, for example, he says that his aim is to provide a fresh 21st century appreciation of Christ that is compelling and personally engaging for Unitarian Universalists. In some ways, this feels like a tough ticket. The Unitarian Universalist prides itself in being a creedless body. McLennan acknowledges that less than 20% of UUs even self-identify as Christians. Many others are agnostic and even atheists. So, it's not clear to me why they would or should even care about an apologetic for the Christ. In successive chapters, McLennan addresses issues that would seem to be non-starters for a good Unitarian Universalist. The Trinity, the Resurrection, miracles, and so on. But what's so important about retaining these ideas if Jesus is just one among many people who had an elevated, an elevated level of spiritual consciousness? McLennan interacts with a broad range of Christians, Rick Warren, John Stott, Rob Bell, N.T. Wright, Marcus Borg, Anne Lamont, and Yaroslav Pelikan. He even has a chapter on how evangelicals and Unitarian Universalists should work together. One of the strengths of the Unitarian Universalists is its advocacy of interfaith dialogue and inclusivity. I especially appreciated McLennan's reminder about avoiding stereotypes and learning to listen. It would seem that a healthy future for any religion depends upon learning to respect and dialogue with other faiths, rather than trying to exclude, marginalize, and even kill each other. This book is a model of ironic dialogue and engagement during our American presidential election that has been marked by such violent and vulgar discourse. Once again, the author, Scotty McLennan, and the title, Christ for Unitarian Universalists. For movies this week, I review a documentary. It's called Debt of Honor, Disabled Veterans in American History, 2015. My father served as a medic in World War II, but like many soldiers of his generation, I don't ever remember him saying anything at all about his experiences. This film helps to explain why. For the most part, we understandably try to forget about our wars, or hide the horrible consequences of war. 
Whereas the disabled veterans who come home after the war are a symbol and a reminder of the horrific human costs of war, physical, psychological, emotional, and surely spiritual. This one-hour PBS documentary starts with the American Revolution and War by War shows how our country's treatment of our disabled veterans has evolved. Our VA system, for example, started after World War I, the GI Bill after World War II. The history progresses up to our current Middle East wars. Although advanced medical treatments meant more people survived injuries and came home, the wars also kept getting bigger and bigger. A citizen army in which every man used to be the norm, a citizen army in which every man served used to be the norm, but that is now long gone and never to return. Today, 1% of Americans serve in our professional volunteer army, while the other 99% of us barely give it a thought. This powerful film gives the lie to the glorification of death and violence to achieve political ends. I watched this film on the PBS website. Once again, the name of the movie, Debt of Honor, Disabled Veterans in American History. And finally, for poetry this week, we have a poem by Shamus Haney. Shamus Haney won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. Born in Northern Ireland, he was the oldest of nine children and until his teenage years lived on his small family farm. The title of this poem is called Miracle and it's based upon the healing in Mark chapter 2 where people let down their friend through the roof of a house. Shamus Haney, Miracle. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep-locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let-up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait, as they wait for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those who had known him all along. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 25th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.